Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Oh, you, you better buckle up. I haven't preached for like two weeks, so um, we're going to get after it. So if you have your Bible, hope you do, go ahead and find your way to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts, starting in Acts chapter 6. Uh, pleasure, joy to be back with you here this week after, uh, like I said, a couple weeks being gone. We had the, the privilege to go and serve over 350 missionaries that serve across Europe uh, for a conference, and Aaron and his wife were able to come with us. Aaron led them all week, and you should be proud of your, your worship leader serving the nations by serving these missionaries all week. He did an amazing job, and after that, yeah, you did. Uh, he did a great job. So, as you already know, he was going to do a great job, but he did a great job. Uh, and that's one of the ways that our church serves the nations is by going there. We're going to send a, the team uh, later in June to Trieste, Italy, to serve the missionaries and church planners that we uh, partner with there. So, uh, that was awesome. And after the conference, uh, with my, uh, three of my daughters and my wife, we got to go explore a little bit, went to Florence, got to Rome, never been to Rome. And on Wednesday of this week, so I'm still jet lagging, but on Wednesday, of this week, got to do something that was totally unique. I, I got to do what they, they explore, spend a day exploring what they call ancient Rome. So buy my 12 euro ticket, go into the Colosseum, walk uh, uh, along this building that was built in the first century, that was built off of the prophets of the sacking of Jerusalem in 72 AD. They took back that and they brought back 12,000 slaves from Jerusalem to build the Colosseum that stands today. And just kind of being in awe in, in uh, their power and their architectural advantage and all the things that was ancient Rome. And then going to the Palatine Hill known as the Eternal City. And I've been in ruins and I've been in castles before and uh, there is nothing quite like this though. These are the buildings dating to the first century and before churches otherwise. And you're walking along the gardens of Caesar Augustus and, and you walk in the palace of, of Nero and you see where Diocletian's uh, palace was and, and just the sense and the weight of history there is, is an amazing thing. You walk and you see the Mamertine prison where the Apostle Paul was in prison and he would write the letter to the Philippians church and others, like just the, the weight of the history there. But as you're, you're going through that, you go through the Colosseum, you just realize that this most powerful empire, the Roman Empire, uh, controlled more territory for more time than any other empire in the history of the world. There were times like under Nero in 64 AD where he burned down half the city and then he blamed the Christians. And a great persecution would break out on the Christians and they would throw them to the lions and they would set them on fire. There were times like Diocletian and others that would, with all of their military might and all of Rome's power and authority, unleash a persecution on Christians to stamp it out. And here I am, 2,000 years later, walking amongst their ruins. And I'm kind of like, who's standing now? Yeah, boy. I mean, it's just kind of bowing up a little bit. Like, who are you? I mean, you're flipping pizza. That, that's too far. But, uh, but, you know, like, you're, you're the eternal city. No, you're not. And it's just a reminder that we're part of an unstoppable mission. The kingdom of God will expand no matter what the cost. And sometimes, as you're reminded, the costs are great. And yet the mission of God goes forward. 
Today, when we look at the book of Acts, we're going to see that the cost of the first martyr, the first person, first Christian to spill his blood for the sake of the mission to go forward. And there's this question that's going to rise up out of it, man, is it worth it? Is it worth even that? Because all of us in this room probably have a very, very short list of things that we'd be willing to give our lives for. And as I'm reading this this week, man, it seems so, oh, in some sense, so distant, so foreign to us in suburban Colorado where we're not worried about this. And safety and comfort and security are our highest priorities. And so I'm like, what do you have for us here, Lord? And I, I, do, I believe God has a, a lot for us, for your joy, for your hope, for your perseverance. But one of the things that we're going to see immediately as we enter into the life of Stephen and his death, we're going to see that he's going to confront something that I, I think is in most of us. I'll call it latent prosperity theology. Not, not blatant th- prosperity theology, not, you know, televangelists where, where uh, smooth hair and, you know, shiny smile and you give your money and you pray your prayers and if you have enough faith, God has to come through for you. You, you got to be healthy and wealthy. Just kind of that crass, blasphemous kind of uh, prosperity theology. I don't think anyone here is necessarily at risk of that, but I think there's a latent prosperity theology in us that just is grown out of the, the grass of our green lawns. And it's this idea, this formula that kind of, we wouldn't ever be so crass as to kind of write it out, but it's this idea that, God, if, if I'm faithful to you, then you're going you're gonna to come through for me. God, God, if I raise my kids in the right way, they're going to grow up and they're going to go to the right schools and they're going to get the right jobs and, and they're going to follow you, Jesus. They're going to they're gonna love you if I do everything right. God, if I, if I give money, then, then, then my marriage, you're, you're going you're gonna to come through. I'm going to have a thriving marriage, right? With just incredible uh, kids, incredible life. My, my business is going to thrive. Like, we, we wouldn't say it, but deep down in us, there's just something in us. If we do our part, God's going to do his part according to what we think he should do. And that's a kind of prosperity theology that is, well, if, if that was true, then Stephen's story would not be in the Bible. Because here, Stephen is going to be the example for us who is, who is more committed, more faithful, more spirit-filled, more in every way, and he's going to die a bloody, vicious death. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. Um, <laughs> but that's just where we're at in the text, so I'm just setting it up, okay? But... but it's just to kind of, it's going to push back against this idea that if I do my part, things got to go well for me. And, and God's going to say, no, there's something bigger at play than your little kingdom. Let me welcome you to the kingdom of God. And things don't always work out as you would hope, but things always work out for the eternal purposes of God and ultimately for his glory and for your joy. And so it's going to confront our latent prosperity theology. But, but we're going to enter into Stephen's life. We're going to see uh, that his life is filled with the spirit. We're going to see that his, his message, we're going to see what that's filled with. We're going to see his death and we're going to see his legacy. And so if you have your Bibles, let me just pray for us as we turn our our eyes to the text uh, that, that God would meet us in this place in this moment. Father, gladly I come before you and confess and admit that we desperately need you. There is nothing of eternal significance that I would have to say. 
But Holy Spirit, through your word and by your spirit, uh, you can do eternal works in our hearts. Lord, so speak to each person here. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive to the end that Jesus is glorified and we are satisfied in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Acts, it's been very intentional because we want to know what the power and the purpose of the church is. It's this, the first church, and, and we want to be on, in line with that. And it's intentional because we feel like God is calling us as a church to be a church that plants churches, that plants churches, that plants churches. And so we want to be on mission. And Lord willing, in September of this year, we're going to send out our best and our brightest to go plant another church down in Castle Rock. And Matthew's going to bring the team down there, and God is going to continue to advance the kingdom. We just want to line up our will, our, our heart, our desire with God's heart, will, and desire. So we've been going through the book of Acts. And last week, uh, Matthew would have been preaching uh, on uh, Acts chapter 6, where uh, a sticky situation has arisen as the church is growing by thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem uh, every day. Uh, there's some logistical needs that are, need to be met. And so um, God, they, they, they are to appoint seven men. And the first thing we see about Stephen's life is that his life is filled with the Spirit. Like, like Paul, Luke rather wants us to see Stephen as a person who is filled by the Spirit. Three times he's going to talk about Stephen being full of the Spirit. So last week we saw that there were to appoint men that were full of the Spirit and wisdom in verse 3. In verse 5, it calls Stephen out specifically, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit a second time. So he's got the Spirit, wisdom, faith, and then down in verse 8, and Stephen full of grace and power. So his life is full, just kind of summarize that, it's full, it's spirit-filled, it's marked by the presence and power of God. That's what Luke wants us to see. Like if anyone's doing the Christian life right, it's Stephen. So, so just kind of look at him, and, and I've said often, when I grow up spiritually, I want to be like Stephen, just a life full of the Spirit. And so that's how he's marked with. And naturally, how could he not but, but be uh, doing what it says in the second half of verse 8? And he was doing great wonders and signs among, among the people. And as far as it's possible, Luke wants to show us that, that Stephen is reflecting the life, the presence, the power of Jesus. Even, that's what we're all called to, by the way, as followers of Christ. But, but Stephen is doing that. And like Jesus, opposition is going to arise. And the opposition is going to echo Jesus' opposition. So his life is filled with the Spirit and his message. Well, let's get to that. First of all, there's some confrontation. Verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and those and of the Cyrians and the Alexandrians, and of those of the Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Why? Because he's having this amazing impact. In fact, at the end of verse 7, it says, even priests are becoming Christians here. And so it's threatening their leadership structure. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, just like Jesus when they would try to, uh, uh, you know, go after him. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, just like they would charge Jesus with. 
Verse 12, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, just like with Jesus. And they set up false witnesses, like with Jesus, who said, This man never ceases, notice their argument, to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And then Luke adds a parenthetical note at the end of this. In the midst of this pressure cooker situation, in the midst of the most stressful situation you can imagine, it says this, and gazing at him, that's Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's all Luke tells us about it. I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's like supernatural, reflecting something there, uh, but, but whatever it means is in the midst of the most pressure, stressful situation, Stephen is at complete peace. I mean, what, I mean wouldn't we all want that? Like, the things that you face, the things that stress you out, wouldn't you love to be able to just have a face of an angel in that moment? Like, God's got this. He, he's under control. Stephen has that. And so he points that out. Verse 1 of chapter 7, And the high priest said, Are these things so? What things? Are, are, you, are, are you speaking against the temple, and are you speaking against the law? And for years, for decades, as I would read my Bible and come to uh, Acts chapter 7, I, I would read this sermon. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts that Stephen preaches. And basically, he's going to, on the one level, on the surface level, he's giving a history of Israel. But notice who he's giving it to. He's giving it to the religious leaders. And I always scratch my head like, really, Stephen? Like, that's the, you, why are you doing a Sunday school class for these guys who have memorized the Bible? Well, it's because though they know the Bible, they, though they win Bible jeopardy, they don't know what the point of the Bible is. So, so Stephen's going to do for them what Jesus, after his resurrection, does for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, it tells us that Jesus, on, on Easter Sunday, walked with two of his unnamed disciples on the road for seven miles. They didn't know it was Jesus. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he told them the things concerning himself. So Jesus gave his disciples a gospel-centered lens to see and savor Jesus. The whole point of the Bible is for us to see Jesus. The whole point of the law, the whole point of the Old Testament, everything is to point us to Jesus. And these guys did not know it. Oh, they knew the Bible. They, they could quote the Bible. They just didn't know the point. And so, to much grace to them, Stephen begins to preach a sermon. And he goes back he says, you're, you're, you're talking about the temple, the place where God meets with his people. Well, God met with Abraham before there was ever a temple. And it was all, it's always been about God meeting with his people. He goes forward throughout the history in the sermon. He talks about Isaac and Jacob. And then he talks about uh, Joseph, who's sold into slavery in Egypt, and, and how, how Joseph is going to rise up and be a deliverer even though he was rejected by his people. He'll go on to Moses. He'll spend a lot of time on Moses, telling the story of Moses. And he'll, he'll talk about how Moses would come and, and God would raise him up as a deliverer, but he is rejected by the people and by the leadership. 
And after he leads them out of, of slavery into, into the wilderness, verse 39 of chapter 7 says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. So there's this pattern beginning to develop. God raises up a deliverer, and God's people turn their back on him and reject him, and the deliverer suffers. So you start to see the pattern that, that gets played out here. And then he moves on. He goes to David and, and the kingdom that God establishes through David. Then he goes to Solomon in verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, the first temple. Look at verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so, so Stephen's argument is, I'm not speaking against the temple. In fact, the whole point of the temple is to point to Jesus. That, that God would come and live among us. And so uh, insofar as the temple does that, it's a good thing. He says, and I'm not speaking against the law. The law is good. The problem is... No one has kept it. Our fathers haven't kept it. God raises up a deliverer and they reject him. And the ultimate deliverer is Jesus. And guess what? He too is rejected. And so there's the problem. Verse 51, he says, you, and this is the culmination of the sermon. I, I would hope that you would go back and read the sermon this week. It's a good sermon. But here's the kind of summary. He says, you stiff-necked people. Now, when he says that, he knows what he's saying. He's signing his death certificate in that moment. But in this moment, he's, he's pleading with them. He's presented the gospel to them. He's holding out the gospel in his message. He says, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. That just means uh, outwardly you might be circumcised, but inwardly you have no heart for God. You have no relationship for God. He says, as your, as your fathers did, so do you do down at 53 but you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it he says the law is good the problem is you don't keep the law you say i'm speaking against the law i'm not speaking against the law i love the law but there's only been one person to, that has been able to fulfill the law the solution comes in verse 52 and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He says, just like all those other deliverers pointed to Jesus, he is the ultimate deliverer who gets rejected, but in his rejection, he is Savior. But he calls him the righteous one, which is a unique title that he could have chosen for Jesus. Why is that? Because his argument is that Jesus alone can fulfill the law. So if, if you're driving out here on Main Street and you come to the light, there's two ways to fulfill the law of the red light. And the first one is prefer preferable. When it turns red, you stop. And, and if you stop, you fulfilled the law of the red light. You got it? That's not hard, right? Another way is to run the red light, to get pulled over, get a ticket, go to court, and pay whatever penalty. And upon paying that penalty, now you've fulfilled the law. And what Stephen's argument is, is, Stephen's plea with these men is that Jesus alone has fulfilled the law in both ways. So he was perfect in his obedience to the law. He was perfect. He lived the life you and I could never live. 
He fulfilled the law in that way. He stopped at the red light. But then he goes on, and at the cross, he goes to the courtroom, and he pays the penalty for your sin and mine. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And he fulfills the law as the wrath of God is poured out on him. And Jesus alone can do this. And so he holds out the gospel to him. So his life is filled by the Spirit. His message is filled with the gospel. His death is filled with hope. Verse 54. Now when they heard these these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. Your translation might say, they gnashed their teeth at him. Like just picture the mob scene. Picture the violence in the room ratcheting up in this moment. Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, the third time Stephen's been called that, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. He he saw the glory of God. I don't think you you get that because you don't understand how amazing that is. That's what we were made for. In this great kindness to Stephen, in his last moments, he looks up and the veil between heaven and earth gets ripped open and, and he sees the glory, the weight, the majesty of God, the most beautiful, the most awesome thing in the universe, the most terrifying thing in the universe, but he sees the glory of God. That's what you and I were made for. That's what we will experience and enjoy forever. He sees the glory of God, but that's not all he sees. This is why we have to read our Bibles slowly, pay attention to the details here. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You're like, okay, what's the big deal? Okay, Jesus is standing. No. Every other time in the New Testament, when Jesus has come and he's lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father and he pays the price on the cross, he's buried, he rises again, he's with his disciples for 40 days and he's telling them about the kingdom. And then when he goes up into heaven, it always describes Jesus as seated, seated at, rather, at the right hand of the Father. His work is finished. He's done and he's waiting. That's how it always describes Jesus. But here, he looks up into heaven, sees the glory of God, and he sees Jesus standing. Why is that important? I think this is really cool. I think this will, should blow your mind. This should infuse your life with hope and purpose. Jesus is standing. I think there's two reasons, at least, why Jesus is standing in this moment. Jesus, the righteous one, is standing, and Stephen, down in an earthly courtroom, it has, is being condemned. He has no one uh, defending him, and he's going to face uh, a death in this moment. But Jesus is standing, and in the heavenly courtroom, in the heavenly throne room, Jesus is standing as Stephen's advocate. 1 John 2, 1 says Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Hebrews chapter 7 says Jesus lives to intercede for us. So so Jesus is standing and he's saying to the Father, he's saying, Stephen has been paid for. Uh, my blood paid his, for his sin. He has been, the law has been fulfilled for him. He is, he is welcome into this kingdom. He is, he is my son. He is, he is our brother. He is, he is rescued and redeemed by my blood. He's advocating to the father for Stephen. Do you get that? 
That's amazing. Stephen is in an earthly courtroom testifying to Jesus, and Jesus is in the heavenly courtroom testifying to Stephen. So that is amazing. Jesus is doing that for us. But there's a second reason, a more tender reason, I think. Jesus is standing in loving anticipation. When something's about to come to an end, when the the game is on the line, do you ever just stand up? (laughs) Not that it's going to affect the game at all, but it's the fourth quarter, and there's four seconds left, and and your team's about to get... I I stand up, and I'm waiting, and I'm anticipating, and we we need a three-point shot in this moment. Like, I'm I'm pacing, and I'm I'm anticipating this moment. I, I think this is a little bit of what Jesus is doing. He's standing up, and he's looking down, and he sees Stephen. He's like, I'm ready for you. Come on. Come on home. I've paid the price. I'm going to welcome you in. It's just going to be soon. And Jesus, with love in his eyes, and nail scars in his hands, And arms wide open is standing, waiting for his son to come in. And a great kindness is given to Stephen in this moment. This terrible, horrible moment. It says, and he said, behold, I see heaven open. And the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They did not like that. Verse 57, but they cried out in a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. Verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Feel that. Imagine that. Imagine what what kind of scene that is as the rocks begin to pelt him. One hits him in the back. Another hits him in the face and breaks his nose. Another hits him in the teeth and knocks some teeth out. Another hits him in the eye and the ribs and the knee, and he's just getting pelted by this angry, angry mob. Verse 58, they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound like anyone you've heard of before? Jesus when he was on the cross and as he's suffering and dying for the sins of the world and as the end comes he he says to the father father into your hands I commit my spirit and now Stephen says Jesus into your hands I commit my spirit it says and falling to his knees he cried out with a loud voice as the rocks keep coming in and he says Lord do not hold this sin against them Again, does that remind you of anyone? He's so much like his Savior that even in that moment, he's able to offer the gospel, offer grace to even the people that are killing him. And he says, forgive them. As Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Which is this, a very stark contrast to the violent, loud scene of his death, a, a kind of tender way to say he passed from this life to the next. So his life was filled with the Spirit. His mouth was filled with the gospel. His death was filled with hope as he saw what ultimately is true and ultimately matters forever. And the question is, was it worth it? Was it worth it? 
Because on the surface, even though this is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, we don't see anyone getting saved. Like, we, we don't see a, a, a breakthrough moment in this moment. I mean, if I preach today and, and you guys get mad enough to stone me at the end, like, I, I consider that a failure of a sermon. <laughs> so he asked the question, was it worth it? And he has a legacy filled with eternal fruit. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. That sounds like a very bad thing. And they were all scattered. Where were they scattered? They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the church gets scattered, but where, where do they get scattered? Acts chapter 8, verse 1 is a fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Stephen's death is the linchpin for the advancement of the gospel of God to the ends of the earth. It's why you're here today. Stephen's death. So I would say his legacy is full of, of everlasting fruit. We'll, we'll see that as, as the church goes, and I love that the apostles stay behind because the church is filled with the Spirit, and they're doing ministry. They're going out. And in Acts chapter 9, we kind of get a summary of how they're doing. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The, the gospel, the mission of God is advancing. So it's full of eternal fruit. But but Luke is very careful to mention someone's name three times, Saul. They laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul, this religious zealot, this, this guy zealous for the law, this guy who thought by his own work and self-righteousness he would earn God's favor. And he not only gives approval, he's kind of leading the charge to stamp out this movement called Christianity. Again, it says in verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering the house after house and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He sounds like a bad dude, and he is. But Saul heard something, and Saul saw something on that day. He saw a man whose face looked like that of an angel. He heard the gospel preached through the Old Testament that he'd never heard before. And he saw a man who was at complete peace with God, even in the midst of the most violent act possible. Deep seeds of the gospel were planted in Saul's heart by Stephen. And we know this because, spoiler alert, he'll become a Christian in a couple weeks. Uh, and, and he will become the leader of the church, the most powerful force the church has ever seen. Uh, but before that, it was Stephen who planted the seeds. We have the longest sermon in the book of Acts by Stephen. How did, we, how did we get it? Luke is very careful to say he interviewed eyewitnesses to write down everything very carefully, but Stephen's dead. So how did we get it? Well, he gets it from Paul. Later down, 
As Paul gets rescued and redeemed, he's telling Luke, he said, hey, and then he talked about Abraham. And then he showed Abraham how Abraham pointed to Jesus. Then he talked about Moses. And he showed how the law pointed to Jesus. Then he talked about David. And he talked about Solomon. And, and, and Luke's taking it all down. And he's like, and, and, and that all pointed to Jesus. And scholars point out that if you look at Stephen's message, it is the foundation of all of Paul's theology that comes out in the book of Romans and Galatians and otherwise. I mean, he had some eternal fruit from that sermon. And so Saul is transformed. But again, the question is, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Well, I would say it's worth it because Stephen understood something that sometimes in our prosperity suburban theology we don't understand. Stephen understood coming to faith in Christ was not asking Jesus to come down and bless our little kingdom and be a little bit of a part of our life and and make us healthy and wealthy. That's not Jesus' purpose. Jesus is not interested in any of that. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's saying, you can join me in my kingdom. You can be a part of this kingdom. You can be a citizen of this kingdom. You can be a servant of this kingdom. And to the end that this kingdom advances, your life is worth it. So yes, it's absolutely worth it. Dying for Jesus is worth it. Not only that, in this passage and throughout the Bible, we see a truth that we have to wrap our, our hearts around, that this life is not all there is. The pursuits of this life is not all there is. Stephen got a, a, a veil torn back and he saw that which was ultimately matter, that which was ultimately eternal. And so he was willingly give up his life for the advancement of God's kingdom. And Saul would learn from Stephen's example to do the same thing. In Acts chapter 20, toward the end of Paul's life, he meets with the Ephesians elders and he says this. Notice the echo of what he learned from Stephen. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul will get arrested. He will go to a prison. He'll go to Rome. He always wanted to go to Rome. He didn't know he'd go as a prisoner. But in Rome, in the Mamertan prison, he would write a letter to the Philippian church. And in Philippians 1.21, he will echo what Stephen first lived before him. He'll say, to me, to, me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So it is worth it. What we see here for us in 21st century is that from an ultimate example, that that it is ultimately worth our lives for the sake of the kingdom of God. Jesus is worth dying for us. But the vast, probably all of us, will not die for our faith. But if Jesus is worth dying for any sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom that he is calling you to is also, therefore, worthy of the sacrifice. So Jesus is worth dying for. But here's what's true for you and for me today as we go out of this room. Jesus is worth living for. Jesus is worth dying for, but Jesus is worth living for. And sometimes we can say, yeah, I would die for Jesus. But the question is, will you live for Jesus? Will you be someone who washes the feet of the city? Will you be someone who, like Jesus, serves and sacrifices and and gives your life away for the sake of the kingdom? I I have a friend that um, 
When he was a little kid, he traveled to Colorado with his family to go on vacation. They were camping up in the mountains, and uh, his little brother uh, slipped and fell into one of these rivers and and was being taken away by the river. He was going to die. And so the older brother, Buddy is his name, he, at great risk to his own life, jumps into the river and begins to get swept away as well and is able to save his brother and just barely save himself and get out. He was willing to lay down his life for his brother. Then he tells the story. The next day, they're having breakfast. They eat their their bacon and eggs and drink their orange juice. And his brother gets up and and goes to the table. And there's just enough orange juice for one more cup. And his brother pours the cup and just drinks it in front of everyone. Doesn't ask anybody, hey, did you want some orange juice? How about you? Can I have the last? No, he just drinks the orange juice. And Buddy says he felt like so angry with him. He wanted to kill his brother. He's like, how does he, who does he think he is? And in that moment, he realized, man, I was willing to die for my brother. But I can't let my brother have the last cup of orange juice. See, oh, it, it's easy to die for Jesus. But listen, no one dies for Jesus out of a vacuum. Long before, before Stephen would die for Jesus, he lived for Jesus. That's why his life was marked by Jesus. That's what you and I are called to. And so that gets very, very practical. In what ways is Jesus calling you to sacrifice for the sake of his kingdom? for the sake of your family? In what ways is he calling you to live, lay down your life, your, your time, your talent, your treasure, so that this city can come and see and savor Jesus? In what ways are, are the nations waiting for you to give away your life? Is it worth it? Absolutely, it's worth it. And so I, I pray that Redemption Parker and the church in the city of all the churches would be marked by this kind of sacrificial washing the feet of the city. May that be what we're known for. That yes, we're willing to die for Jesus, but we're willing to live for Jesus, for his glory, and for our joy. To that end, let me pray for us. Father, as we respond to your word now, thank you for Stephen. Lord, I do pray that me and each person here would grow up spiritually, even today, a little bit to be more like him, filled by your spirit, with our mouth full of your gospel, with our hope set for eternity, to live lives that will echo forever. Lord, I pray for anyone here right now, specifically, Holy Spirit, that you would just show them what you're calling them to and show them that it is worth it, whatever that is. Just affirm that in their hearts right now. Father, I do pray for Redemption Parker, for for the other churches in the city, that the one church that is under the banner of Jesus, that we would be marked by a living for Jesus, to then that Jesus is glorified and we are satisfied. In his name we pray, amen.